1: Hi, this is Jim Stein, your host for New Books in Math, a channel of the New Books Network. Our guest today is Alexander Draganov, author of Mathematical Tools for Real-World Application. Alexander says everyone calls him Sasha, so I will too. I've never read a book like this. It's a book about how engineers and scientists see math, and I found it fascinating. What intrigued me about this book was not that it just presents and solves a bunch of interesting problems. It shows how scientists and engineers differ in their approach to problem solving from mathematicians. Shame on me, but as a mathematician, I've always been a little uncomfortable with the way engineers and scientists use mathematics. I wish I'd seen this book when I was in college. I'd have done a lot better in my physics courses. Sasha, welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me, Jim. Sasha, what's your background and how did it motivate you to write this book? Uh, I grew up in uh, Kiev, Ukraine, which uh, was at the time
0: it was still a part of the Soviet Union. So, of course, as you know, I I cannot uh, avoid um, stating that, but uh, today uh, Ukraine is is an independent country, but is brutally attacked by Russia, which seemingly wants to go back to that uh, Soviet Union. And uh, I was there uh, in the 70s. I was very lucky with my high school. We had great teachers in physics and math. I want to mention one of them. Uh, Her name uh, is Vera Rosenberg. I recently learned uh, from a friend that she now lives in New York. I got her number, I called her, and uh, she uh, said that, Sasha, I remember you, you were younger than your peers. And I was, indeed, but uh, I became her student 50 years ago, in 1972. And I was told by my friends that uh, she remembers all of her students.
1: Wow. Yes.
0: (laughs) I remember a few good ones. Okay. I went to major in theoretical physics in Kiev University. And there it was considered cool to uh, do uh, analytical solutions on paper and to use computers as little as possible. Uh, First of all, of course, computers were primitive, uh, but uh, also it was kind of a difference between artisanal work, handmade product, and uh, something that is made by machine. And of course, now we have uh, little limitations uh, on the computer power, but I think analysis is uh, still quite important. And computers do produce numbers and plots, but uh, we still need to understand what that means. And that is part of my motivation for writing this book.
1: Yeah, you know, the background of this book consists of six important mathematical tools for solving those nasty real-world problems. First of all, What is it that makes real-world problems nastier than the ones you see in a standard math book?
0: So I think real-world problems are nastier in a sense that they're messier. Uh, Usually there are many factors, different present, uh, uh, there are many phenomena, everything is coupled, and in applications it's uh, very difficult to come up with a clean, isolated problem. Many such problems have already been solved. And take, for example, uh, for example, take a computation of a satellite orbit. So we know that Isaac Newton solved this problem for uh, two spherical bodies, or two point masses. But to launch a satellite today, we need to do much better than that. It's no longer an elliptical orbit, uh, because uh, uh, Earth is not uh, spherical. Uh, Distribution of mass in the Earth is not uniform. There is gravity from Sun, Moon, and other planets, uh, such Jupiter primarily. Uh, there is atmospheric drag from this very thin plasma that uh, where a satellite is in, and other phenomena. Uh, so uh, that is uh, what you know. W- what are real-world applications? And one more thing that I want to uh, say is that uh, math textbooks for high schools. Uh, are largely driven today by standardized tests. And such tests, they must have a lot of problems. They cannot have two or three problems to solve for a test because then results of a test would not be statistically significant. And uh, that's why they have dozens of problems on the test, but then solution of each problem must be really short and not nasty. And students get used to that. And then that student goes to college, where things are somewhat different, and then uh, she goes to either grad school or uh, to work, and she gets a problem that requires three months to solve, and that's a very different thing.
1: You bet.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So uh, that is complete change, and for a massive problem, it's easier to make a mistake. So uh, one has to be on guard at all times, and you have to know where
1: you're going, and you have to use a different set of tools, and
0: that's what I was trying to do.
1: You know, one of the things that you uh, uh, that you say at the start of the book is that a real-world problem usually does not have a single number as an answer, and there are a lot of trade-offs. Could you give an example of what you mean by this?
0: Yes. Uh, so I feel the goal is uh, rarely a number as such, uh, because number is uh, an abstract thing, and we have uh, other goals, which are usually non-numerical. Uh, A concrete goal. The goal may be um, like a working device or functioning system, or maybe we need to make a conclusion where whether a new drug works from results of a clinical trial and so forth. So in all these um, examples, there are different parameters, and they can be viewed as knobs to turn, to, to turn and levers to pull. And there is a space of parameters that should be explored. And for example, take like um, uh, someone who is designing um, a cellular network, and the ultimate goal is to achieve good coverage at some reasonable cost. So there is a choice between fewer towers, uh, cell towers, and higher signal power at each, or more towers and lower power. Uh, there is height of the tower; terrain can be different. It can be urban or uh, rural or things in between. And there is other choices that must be made, such as structure of the signal and uh, antenna placement. And that means that uh, a model for uh, such a system should have all these parameters and this space of parameters should be explored.
1: You know, you just don't see that in math books. (laughs) um, You know, there is a feature of this book that I found very attractive. The first is that although you have sections in the back devoted to solving the problems you study, the book is not so much about solving problems as it is to examining whether solutions or proposed solutions are reasonable. You also pay a great deal of attention to extracting the most mileage from a solution to a problem. These really are real-world world applications, and this book is the first one I've seen that spends so much time on this, and I think it's really important. Uh,
0: yes. Uh, I'm trying to uh, use simpler problems there in the book, not as complicated as, uh, you know, placing uh, a s- uh, cellular network, uh, but uh, using various tools to a particular problem to explore it from different angles.
1: Yeah, let's look at the six important tools you study one by one. The first is dimensional analysis, which you never see in a math book, although I do recall one of my physics books mentioning it right off the bat. Exactly what is dimensional analysis?
0: So, uh, as you know, that many quantities are measured in some kind of units. Uh, Distance may be measured in uh, meters or uh, light years and time in seconds, and uh, the revenue of a company in dollars, and so forth. And uh, the basic thing is that units must be consistent in uh, each equation. Another thing which is important, and some people um, are not aware of this, that both the argument and the value of any transcendental function must be dimensionless. So it must not be measured in any units. And that is true, for example, for trigonometric functions, for exponents, and all the special functions like Bessel functions or the gamma functions, so, so on. And, of course, the question is why units must be consistent. Um, I, I think uh, one you know, typical explanation is that units are our ar- arbitrary choice. And if we change units, the results should scale in a particular way, for all equations, all all the results, and if you consider a sum of of a distance and a time uh, where things are measured in different units, they would not scale, and that's why units must be important, uh, must be consistent.
1: You know, my impression is that dimensional analysis is often used as a check to see if a solution is reasonable. It seems to me that this will catch gross errors such as the one you mentioned. Are you measuring, uh, are you adding distance and time? But maybe it doesn't catch the lesser ones so well.
0: Yes, of course, uh, no tool is uh, universal. Uh, a lot of errors that are not by dimensional analysis, but still it should be a habit, uh, almost like uh, brushing uh, teeth in the morning. And I, I have to say that I've seen highly qualified people whom I deeply respect who failed to check units and uh, were getting a wrong formula as a result of that. So uh, it, it has to be done. Yeah, uh, it's, it's not difficult to do.
1: No, it certainly isn't, but I can recall back in, I think it was the 90s that... Uh, that the uh, the Americans and uh, the Europeans were measuring in different units and they hadn't really, one was measuring in uh, English units and one was measuring in metric units and as a result they lost a $200 million satellite.
0: That's correct, yeah. Yeah. It was
1: Mars Mars Orbiter that went uh, not to Mars but elsewhere. Yeah, just ridiculous. (laughs) Anyway, what is a dimensionless variable and how are they used?
0: So uh, a dimensionless variable uh, is quite useful. It is a combination of two or more variables uh, that does not have any units associated with it. And the simplest case uh, is a ratio of two variables that have the same units. For example, speed is measured typically in meters per second, uh, but the ratio of, uh, say, like my driving speed or walking speed to the speed of light is dimensionless, right? Yeah. Uh, So... They are used in uh, two ways, primarily. Uh, First, um, if we consider, again, exploring the space of parameters, sometimes there are many parameters to deal with. Three, four, five, uh, you know, ten parameters. And it's quite difficult to uh, understand what's going on because of many, many different facets in the problem. And so, if you combine these parameters in dimensionless combinations, uh, you will almost always see that there are fewer variables to deal with. And second is uh, very important: is to determine if a variable is large or small. So if I'm uh, looking at uh, my walking speed, it you know in millimeters per second it's uh, it's a, has a large numerical value, and in kilometers per second it's small. Uh, but uh, if you so there is no way to determine whether it's large or small. But if you look at uh, its ratio to, say, speed of light, it's small, and uh, that means that... You're...
1: Well, so is practically everything.
0: <laughs> yeah, so we don't have to use uh, relativistic um, theory to analyze that, right? So Yeah. Uh, yeah.
1: You know, one of the things that I like about each of the chapters in your book that analyze the uh, various different tools, and we'll get on to some of the others in a moment, is at the start of the chapter you have an anecdote as to why this particular tool is important, and at the end of each chapter you have a nice summary of what you consider the important takeaways. I liked both of these. Uh, Yeah, I, I was trying to... First of all, to
0: make uh, sure that uh, readers know that something is important, and uh, these anecdotes are uh, put them in, in, in a position to appreciate the tool that will be introduced in that particular chapter.
1: Yeah, some of the anecdotes were very attractive, and uh, I enjoyed reading them. Anyway, the next tool you look at is limiting case analysis. This is a tool which is useful for both mathematical and practical problems. You spend a lot of time looking at limiting cases for a quadratic equation. What are some practical problems for which this is important?
0: So limiting cases, uh, I think they are very useful. And uh, I just want to tell like an old joke about a theoretical physicist who is uh, hired by a company making furniture. And they ask him to compute the stability of a regular table with four legs. And very quickly, he brings results for a table with one leg and for a table with the infinite number of (laughs) legs. And then he starts working on the stability of a table with an arbitrary number of legs attached to the table in, in arbitrary way. And that tells you the way to use limiting cases. So if you have a difficult problem one way to approach it is to solve a simpler problem first and often that is a problem where one of the parameters has some kind of special value. It may be very small or uh, very large or pi over 2 or something like this. Uh, And uh, then you do that and then you start to work on, on, uh, on the main problem. But first of all, you already have appreciation for where you are going, uh, and uh, second, uh, when you are solving the, you know, the ma- major main problem, you can refer back to the limiting case and see whether
1: it's consistent with that limiting case and everything whether everything is going right. Yeah, that's a nice point that you can check with. You can check by looking at the limiting cases. You know, earlier you discussed cellular networks as to what you were doing on the ground, but what problems arise when engineers are working out how to place satellites for maximum utility?
0: Well, there are many uh, problems. Whether you place uh, where you place that satellite and. uh or a constellation and uh, how do you design, for example, antennas for that satellite or any kind of communication equipment. Uh, if you're talking about limiting cases, uh, what comes to mind is that you may try to cover as much uh, space on the surface of Earth as possible. And uh, a GPS satellite is an example of that. Uh, uh, each GPS satellite com- covers approximately almost half of the globe. And uh, on the other hand, uh, telecommunication satellites, they want to maximize power at a particular user. So they have a very narrow beam that targets a
1: particular user, each particular user. And so these are different kind of... I see. Those are both limiting cases. You know, when you introduce the idea of symmetry... Um, you used a discussion about Newton's falling apple. I just absolutely love this, and I think the audience would appreciate it as well.
0: Yes, what Newton What Newton could have thought when uh, he saw that apple falling. So he saw that it is moving in the direction to the center of the earth, right? And that is true whether it uh, falls in the suburb of London or in America or in Paris or Beijing. And so If you assume that both the apple and the Earth are spherical, that direction is special because it's the axis of symmetry for these two two spheres. And if the apple went in any other direction, it would create a problem. For example, consider a situation when the apple goes not uh, exactly downward, but somewhat eastward. And then there would be a question: Why is it going eastward and not westward? Because this is a completely equivalent uh, directions. Why would it Why would it choose one of them? But for the direction exactly downward, there is no symmetric counterpart. And uh, so that question never comes up. And so uh, this is an example of how another key thought uh, is that if apple If the apple falls to Earth, the Earth also falls to to the apple because these two bodies they are not uh, different in principle right they have different sizes
1: the attraction is mutual right
0: yeah and i also want to give another example which i uh, like uh, there was this a uh, well-known theoretical physicist uh, his name was arkady migdal and many years ago i heard an interview with him and he was telling a story so he was in the mountains uh, sitting next to a young couple and the woman asked her friend, "Why the sky is? Uh, why is the sky so blue? And as you know, in the mountains, the sky is more deep blue than at the sea level." And the young man said, "This is because the light scattering is proportional to the third power of frequency." And Mikael intervened in this. He couldn't tolerate that, of course, and he intervened in, intervened in the, uh, this conversation and said, "Young man." Light scattering is a reversible process, and therefore it can only be proportional to an even power of frequency. In this case, the fourth. (laughs) And this is a great example of how a symmetry with respect to the direction of the time axis works. Uh, And Mikkel, of course, understood that, but we can learn also how to use symmetry to our advantage to, to see whether things look right or not.
1: Well, symmetry, uh, I'm not so familiar with symmetry in engineering. Of course, I'm familiar with symmetry in mathematics. We use it a lot. But also, you see it in physics. And i just sort of like to just temporarily detour into this for a moment. One is the idea of symmetry occurs in Einstein's assumption of isotropy for the theory of relativity, that the universe looks the same no matter where you are. Uh Yes, this is
0: symmetry towards, uh, uh, you know, transitions and rotations is absolutely fundamental in physics. Uh, And, uh, of course, it's uh, what physics is largely based on. Uh, uh, And, uh, by the way, it's also connected with uh, conservation laws. Uh, But I want to mention that symmetry cannot be taken for granted uh, always. Uh, So, for example, the left-right symmetry doesn't always hold. Uh, people have have assumed that uh, if you see a system, one system that is a mirror image of another system, it would behave the same way, but a mirror image of that uh, behavior. But that's not true. There are some exotic situations when a mirror image process is different from its uh, from another one. Uh, And people did get an Nobel Prize for this sometimes in the 50s.
1: Yeah, I remember. I think they got it back when I was first starting out as a student back in the 50s. Um, And that was something that always sort of intrigued me. And I read things about it, but I never really studied it, about how the idea of swapping variables induced a symmetry. Uh, For instance, they talk about in physics, they talk about things such as charge parity symmetry and stuff like that. And I thought this was extremely interesting that the universe worked that this way, and it made some sort of sense to me. But my physics courses, my the physics courses that I took, were at the elementary level, and I realized pretty quickly that I was more suited for mathematics than physics or engineering. So I didn't get into this. But every so often, I read in articles about people talking about various symmetry violations, and. What impact they have on the universe, and I think that's you know I I, I think if physicists think that's an important idea, uh, they're the ones who know best.
0: <laughs> yeah, and uh, that's true. And I think it's not just physics. Uh, so, for example, you mentioned uh, swapping variables. Uh, this can be purely mathematical thing, or it can be useful in economics or data analysis, and what what have you. So, for example. Like a very simple example, if you have uh, two variables that play the same role and uh, they can be swapped in in some equations, they also can be swapped uh, and leave equations invariant in all, in all other equations for that system. So, for example, take uh, a sine function uh, of x plus y, a sine of a sum, and you can swap x and y, of course, and the result will be the same. But that also means that the identity for the sine of a sum must have the same property right so uh, the identity is uh, sine of x plus y is equal to sine x cosine y plus cosine x sine y and it does have the same property so uh, this is another tool that can be used to check your results this is a tool that can be used to, to to predict what form a solution should have in rough terms of course And uh, take a number of ways, for example, to select uh, seven objects from a set of ten objects. And there is a formula that is given by uh, the binomial coefficient. But if you take seven objects out of ten, you leave three objects on the table. And that means that the number of ways to take seven objects from a set must be the same as the number of ways uh, to take three objects. And uh, binomial coefficients do not... do have that property, of course. So it's not just in physics, it's a very common property that we should learn how to recognize and use to our
1: advantage. Yeah, I remember thinking about that in basketball because in basketball a team consists of twelve people, but only five are on the floor at any time. And so one of the standard questions one has is how many different uh, teams can be are is it possible to put on the floor? But you can (laughs) also look at it as the number of people who are sitting on the bench at the same time. Because when you take five people and put them on the floor, seven are sitting on the bench. The number of bench sitting teams must be the same as the number of playing teams. Exactly. Yep. You know, you discuss a problem which fascinated me, the syrup blending problem. Um, exactly what is it and how does symmetry apply?
0: So, it's not a very practical problem, but I thought it is a good illustration of uh, what I was trying to uh, to present in the book. So, say you have uh, two or three sugar syrups, uh, solution of sugar in, in water. And uh, they have known masses and concentrations of sugar. And the question is, what would be the concentration of sugar if you mix them together? So one symmetry is uh, quite obvious. Uh, If you swap in your equations syrup one and syrup two, the result will be the same. Uh, That is natural. The second symmetry uh, deals with the way we can blend three syrups. And there are two ways to do that one is we just put three of them in a bowl and mix them another is to do it in two stages we blend syrups one and two and then uh, that mix we blend with uh, syrup three and obviously the result the final result the concentration of the final mix should be the same because it doesn't matter how you do that Uh, but equations look somewhat different uh, if you model this uh, process
1: right yeah but
0: they of course they have to produce the same the same answer the same result right mm-hmm. and the third symmetry deals with the concentration of water in each syrup because we just uh, chose to um, to compute concentration of sugar but this is one ingredient uh, the same should be true for the other ingredient which is water and results should be invariant where you kind of
1: I love this problem because there are so many different symmetries that you never think of because normally you just grind out the answer, but that's just really cute. You know, you also uh, you discussed satellite coverage in conjunction with limiting case analysis, but it also shows up in the symmetry section. How is symmetry used in this problem?
0: So in that problem, uh, we consider a satellite that transmits... Uh, a signal in a conical beam directly downward. And that beam, uh, on the Earth's surface, it uh, covers a round spot. And so the question is, what is the radius of that spot? And if you think about it, uh, because of symmetry, and this is kind of explained in the book, uh, the radius of the spot as a function of the angle in the beam cone must be uh, either an even or an odd function depending on how that radius is measured, in which direction it is measured. But it cannot be a function that is neither odd nor even. And uh, this is one way to check if the solution is right. And this is kind of like uh, that example uh, from Arkady Migdal, uh, which also dealt with uh, with an
1: even function, essentially. The next tool you investigate is scaling. What is the difference between linear scaling power law scaling, and exponential scaling? So scaling is
0: what happens if a parameter is multiplied by a constant factor. And uh, sometimes we know what happens uh, with the system or with equations. For example, if you ride a bike uh, on a level path with with no hills, uh, your effort is mostly to overcome the force of the air drag, And that scaling is quadratic with respect to velocity. And that means that if you write at twice the speed, the air drag quadruples. And uh, this is probably familiar to many listeners. (laughs) It's much difficult to to increase speed. Uh, And uh, that kind of ripples through all these equations. And, uh, you know, it is uh, quite important in practice, right? And uh, geese fly in V v formation for that reason. They conserve energy except for the one goes in the front. And often there are multiple scaling be- behaviors, and they compete with each other. For example, a linear and quadratic uh, one, and one scaling can completely dominate the other one. And that can be used to simplify the problem because we can neglect uh, one of the effects if it is uh, quite small, right? Yes. And then there is exponential scaling, and uh, we know that exponential growth always eventually wins over a power law no matter what is the power law no matter what is the exponential growth it it wins eventually uh, if it is maintained of course and this is what financial people mean when they talk about the power of compound interest
1: Um, You know, one of the first things in astronomy that I found fascinating was something called Olber's Paradox, which I think is almost 200 years old. And what exactly is it, and how does it relate to scaling?
0: Yeah, I uh, try to use Olber's Paradox to show how different scalings work together. And the paradox goes like this. So suppose our universe is infinite and has infinite number of stars, and they are, on average, statistically... Uh, kind of more or less uniformly spread in the universe. So the intensity of intensity of light from each individual star scales with the distance from that star as one over distance squared. Uh, but the number of stars that emit light to, to to us that we can see from a particular distance also scales; and it increases as a power law, right? and so if you believe that model if you com- combine these two scalings the whole intensity of light from all the stars in the universe doesn't converge if you look it over distance uh, in you know
1: yeah infinity. each shell at a constant radius should contribute the same amount of light
0: yeah and so we should see an infinitely infinitely bright sky day or night and uh, that, of course, doesn't happen, so something must be wrong here, and uh, we can point to a couple of things uh, that uh, make this paradox uh, you know, not applicable to real life, and maybe the universe is not infinite, maybe it came to, to be a finite time ago, and so we only can see stars from uh, limited distance, uh, which are at some limited distance, and so on
1: yeah I think it's I think it's a lovely example. Um, the next tool that you discuss is order of magnitude estimates. And it seems like that's more of a scientific tool or an engineering tool than a mathematical one. But I like your leadoff example of Fermi estimating the strength of the first atomic bomb explosion.
0: Yeah, I agree that it is more a uh, scientific or engineering tool uh, used less in mathematics. And about that anecdote, uh, Fermi was present at the first uh, atmospheric test of the atomic bomb Uh, A group of people were standing at some distance from the blast, which was uh, deemed safe uh, And he was dropping tiny pieces of paper on the ground And uh, he observed how these pieces of paper were falling And when the blast wave hit their side Uh, these pieces of paper were blown away by a few feet and from that observation from the distance which these pieces of uh, paper traveled uh, he was able to roughly estimate the power of the explosion in kilotons and later that estimate was confirmed it was a rough estimate but it was correct by the order of magnitude
1: you know, so, I think Fermi was very well known for being able to make back-of-the-envelope calculations that were remarkably accurate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what are coupling effects, and how do they impact order-of-magnitude estimates? Uh, so
0: there are multiple competing effects, usually, uh, in any application. Uh, we, uh, I mentioned uh, estimating a satellite orbit, and it's quite complicated in real life. Uh, we have to account... Should we account for the gravity from moon or uh, tides in the ocean or uh, atmospheric drag and where we draw the line. So we have to estimate roughly uh, each effect and decide that this effect, particular effect is important. Say gravity from moon and uh, tides are important, but pressure from the solar wind is not. But in addition, all these effects are coupled. So the combined effect of the tides, and uh, say atmospheric drag, or any combination of the two, is not just the sum of these effects, really. But uh, if you estimate uh, each of them and uh, uh, draw the line somewhere, some of them can be neglected. So we cannot account for everything, but we have to decide what is important and what is not.
1: You know, one really practical use of order of magnitude estimates sort of surprised me when I saw it in your book. It's in estimating mortgage payments. And since I'm willing to bet that the majority of our listeners have mortgage payments or are considering mortgage payments, I'm guessing most of our listeners would be interested in this.
0: Yeah, I can brag a little. When we were buying our first home, uh, I impressed the loan officer uh, by quickly estimating Mortgage payments um, with without using a specialized financial calcula- calculator. I used a regular cal- calculator, and uh, I even corrected his mistake because he, I guess, he punched numbers incorrectly. But in general, finance has a lot to do with rough estimates because uh, when we start a project or just consider a budget, it is quite important to to see what are major important things and which are minor things which are less important which which can be uh almost ignored right so we don't have to sweat over the small
1: stuff yep absolutely and i remember uh, i spent some of my time as a stock option trader, and there's a very well-known formula, uh, the Black-Scholes formula, which gives you the estimate, uh, which gives you an estimate of the value of a stock option in terms of five different variables. But some of the variables, like the current interest rate, I- are n- Uh, can be neglected. And so you learn to make order of magnitude estimates unless you have something available to compute this. And back Mm -hmm. in the day, you just didn't. So it's, you know, being able to produce order of magnitude estimates is extremely useful. And it's a skill that I think should be taught Um, you know, that, that you can learn, you know, that you can teach a child because one of the things that you can do is teach them how to make approximations. They go to the store with their mother, uh, how much, you know, what's the bill going to be? Things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Um, and the last tool that you discuss is successive approximations. And again, you lead off with a lovely example. How did this tool enable 19th century astronomers to deduce the location of the planet Neptune?
0: So this is a classic story, it's well known, uh, and uh, in the beginning of uh, the 19th century, astronomers uh, had data on the orbit of, uh, of Uranus, which was the last known planet at the time, but then it turns turns out that the data could not be explained by the gravity from the Sun and from the other planets. And uh, two mathematicians... Uh, not sure how to pronounce the name, Urbain Le I guess, and John Couch Adams, uh, independently of each other, they had uh, a hypothesis that uh, the irregularities in that orbit were due to another yet unknown planet. And so uh, they decided to check uh, whether such planet, um, where, where such planet might be located. Uh, This was before computers were available, of course. Calculation was very tricky. Uh, But they predicted the location of that planet, the orbit, and astronomers pointed telescopes to the region predicted by uh, the theory. And sure enough, there was a planet that they called Neptune. But what is important that there is no nice closed-form solution for that problem. uh, Because at most, we can do a two-body problem. Uh, today, three, there was a substantial prog- progress in a three-body problem, but it was like eight body right, bodies there, right? But the whole thing became possible only because they assumed that there was a small parameter, so that interaction between pairs of planets is small compared to the interaction with Sun. And this is how the method of successive approximation works. You leverage a small parameter. And of course, a small parameter must be dimensionless, as we talked about. So if you have one, it gives you a a great tool to solve very tough problems.
1: Yeah, it's amazing to me that the universe manages to solve the three-body problem quite well just because it puts those planets there and they interact with each other and they go where the laws tell them, but we can't fit, you know, we have difficulty uh, and have to approximate it because we can't find the exact solution that the universe has.
0: Yeah. Uh, and, uh, of course, this is like an analog computer, not a digital computer, but an analog one.
1: Yeah, <laughs> very, very true. Um, why uh, You've sort of given us a hint as to why approximations are so important in real-world problems, but do you have any uh, any uh, favorite examples other than, for instance, the uh, one involving Neptune in which uh, successive approximations are important?
0: Uh Well, one approximation is uh, uh, that uh, if you turn on on a GPS receiver, it has to assume some default position first. And uh, in many cases, it assumes a default position in the center of the Earth. (laughs) I didn't know that. Even though, obviously, a signal cannot uh, penetrate there, right? But then it uses uh, these successive approximations and it quickly, quickly converges to the exact position uh,
1: within a few iterations. And that's that happens every time. <laughs> so, so it's quite, quite tough. Okay. Um, uh, and you just mentioned iteration. What is it and how does it apply to the classic problem of the race between Achilles and the tortoise? Uh,
0: so uh, listeners who studied computer science... Uh, are often familiar with that because uh, you start from some initial guess and then repeat the calculations to approach a solution and that's how uh, many things are computed, like square root of two on a calculator. But uh, in the book I used uh, the classic example of Achilles chasing a tortoise just to illustrate this, right? So uh, there is this uh, Xeno paradox uh, which says that Achilles can never reach the tortoise in a race. And if you're not familiar with that paradox, suppose that originally Achilles was uh, behind the tortoise, separated uh, from the tortoise by, say, 100 meters, right? And then a tortoise runs 10 times slower than Achilles does. And so Achilles runs that distance, but the tortoise also moves by 10 meters. Then Achilles runs 10 meters, but the tortoise moves 1 meter, and so on. And Xena... Uh, An ancient Greek philosopher uh, Concluded that This requires infinitely many steps And therefore Achilles Should not be able to reach the tortoise But of course uh, In reality this whole series It converges So Achilles is fine But this thinking of uh, Solving problem in an iterative way Rather than at once Is how iterations work And
1: they approach uh, the correct result up to some number of steps. Yeah, you know, um, uh, when I think of iteration as used in mathematics, you see that a lot of problems involving solutions of equations, finding f- or finding roots of uh, functions, that's one of them. Or finding numerical solutions to differential equations, a lot of them are iterative processes, meaning that, uh, meaning that I think of it as the next step depends on where you were in the previous step and the process right. you take. Right. And for
0: example, uh, regional Google algorithm, which is called page uh, page algorithm, right. algorithm, right? Page yep. rank. Uh, It was an iterative process. It was uh, finding the largest eigenvalue of a very large uh, sparse matrix
1: using an iterative approach. And it made Google what it is now. Wow. (laughs) You know, a lot of the times people don't think that mathematics has application in the real world. They think of it as sort of abstract. And yes, they know that engineering and physics and a lot of uh, uh, you know that there are a lot of places that use mathematics but they think of it sort of more as a tool than as something that's integral to with the way that the universe works and I'm a believer that it's integral to the way the universe works but uh, I think you're, one of the things that I really liked about your book is that, as I said, it made me more comfortable with the way scientists and engineers use mathematics because they don't necessarily use it with the exactitude and precision that mathematics does, but they get stuff to work.
0: Yeah. Uh, so, uh, again, problems in mathematical textbooks are I felt they're different from real world applications.
1: There is a gap. And, oh, you bet. Uh,
0: My goal was trying to fill that gap, yes.
1: You know, at the end of the book, you discuss two real-world problems that use some or all of the tools that you dictate in that book. And one of them just absolutely resonated with me, and I'm sure it's going to resonate with our listeners when we discuss it or when you discuss it. Um, The first of your problems was how to minimize the probability that an airplane does not land on the intended runway. How does this occur And how do the tools in your book help to prevent this? So this problem is an example of
0: uh, of a situation when you have random events that may be extremely rare, but also catastrophic. So uh, it is an airplane crash, a powerful earthquake, and so on, right? Yep. And uh, one of the lessons that were hard learned is that, Uh, distribution, probability distribution for such events is not necessarily Gaussian. So the main hump of the distribution function quite often is close to Gaussian, uh, but people overuse uh, this, uh, what is known as the central limit theorem, and they conclude that tails are also Gaussian, and tails converge much uh, more slowly, uh, if you look at how it works. And so many many people do not appreciate appreciate this. They estimate probability of such events and they can conclude that it's negligible. But it is not. And we have to account for that. We have to design systems, safety critical uh, systems, in such a way that accounts for that. So the tools in my book help to get appreciation for how much things can be different from a Gaussian. In that you know, in that particular example, and I want to give an application uh, that is important. Of course, this is uh, now. You know most people recognize that and when designing uh, you know airplanes uh, or uh, nuclear power stations uh, they they know that fortunately
1: yeah of of the tools that you uh um of the tools that you discuss in the book, there were six of them. which do you find that um which do you think are more valuable and which do you think occur most frequently?
0: I think uh, occurs most frequently is uh, limiting case analysis because uh, almost every problem, uh, you know, you can use it uh, for almost any problem. Uh, what is uh, quite valuable is successive approximations because it almost provided uh, job security for generations of physicists and engineers. <laughs>
1: Yes, and as someone who's who's spent some time uh, early in my youth working for an engineering firm, I can appreciate that. Um, Sasha, it's been a pleasure interviewing you. And I'd like to ask you a couple of questions. First, I suspect that there might be some people who will be interested in communicating with you. I, as I said, one of the things that I wish I'd done is I wish I'd had your book available when I was taking engineering and physics courses early in my career, because the, uh, I know I would have done a lot better because I just didn't think like that. I thought like a mathematician rather than a physicist or an engineer. And I think this book helped you in that uh in that area so how can listeners get in touch with you if they want to
0: it's simple uh, email works well uh, for me and uh, my email is sasha which is s-a-s-h-a then dot my last name dragon at gmail.com and i'll be very glad to hear from listeners of this uh, podcast or from readers of the book.
1: Yeah. You know, one of the things that I've always been, it's, it's not just you, but over the years, I've had occasion to write people in academia who may have been, you know, who may have been more, very well known, but didn't know who I was, and they were unfailingly polite. And I think that's one thing that members of aud- the audience may not appreciate, is that if you write an academic, they're almost certain to write back because, A, they're not deluged with mail. They don't get fan mail like a rock <laughs> star or a uh, or an athlete. And usually when people write an academic, it concerns a problem that either interested the academic or something that may potentially interest them. So we're interested in getting emails. And the other thing that I'd like to ask you is if you have any interesting projects on the horizon that we might be interested in on, might get to talk to you about at a future date so i just
0: completed one project and uh, that was writing down solutions to all exercises in the book so in case someone wants to teach a class based on this book uh, act, solutions to
1: all the exercises are available uh, that, that that's good to know but that's about this book have you got anything uh, in yeah. mind for the future right
0: and uh Originally, I wanted to write something for uh, for high school, uh, but failed. It drifted towards a college level, uh, but uh, and now I am still want to, to 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 have a challenge and to write something for for the high school level. And my next goal, hopefully, will be write a book that tells high school students what a proof is how to do proofs, Uh, and there are some good books on this, but I think there is still a need, maybe a need for another one
1: there are certainly a bunch of good books on it I just finished interviewing someone on the history of proof but I think that's a, would be a wonderful contribution if you can make it at the high school level because some of the you know the the proof techniques that uh, uh, mathematicians and, and mathematicians and physicists acquire usually require substantially more background and experience in doing them and I know that uh, when I took geometry long ago Going far away. Um, I'd found algebra and arithmetic very easy. And when it got to geometry and proofs, I had a really hard time. And so I think that if you can structure a book on proofs for high school students, um, I think it would be very valuable. And when it's published, I'd certainly be interested in talking to you about it. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. I'll, I'll try to do that. Okay. Thank you very much, Sasha. Take care.
0: Thank you. Thank you for having me.